0: A few guessed in the high 20 millions. Others guessed the low 30s. Reich wrote down 39 million. Head banker White, who had been talking up the ego play strategy, figured he ought to put his money where his mouth was. White wrote 39.5 million dollars and stuffed his guess into the envelope. Reich wasn't sure what to expect as he waited for the Japanese woman and French American man who had bid 41 million dollars. The names Renoir and Nakahara had meant nothing to Wright. He punched the numbers into his calculator. The lease payments from Malkin and Helmsley would give the couple a scant 4.6% annual return on the purchase price. Wright didn't consider it his job to stop people from making foolish deals. Wright could find no one who knew anything about Renoir and Nakahara. They were an enigma. Ordinarily, when Prudential was unloading, say, strip malls, or suburban office buildings, it cared about little more than whether a potential buyer could come up with untainted cash. But the Empire State Building was a different matter. Prudential feared a firestorm of negative publicity if it sold the landmark to the wrong buyer. Under the circumstances, the seemingly ludicrous economics of the Renoir's bid bore careful scrutiny, Reich decided. He wanted to put a question directly to the bidder. Why? Why? When Renoir and his wife arrived at Reich's spacious office on the 20th floor of New York's Rockefeller Center, Reich rose to his feet and introduced himself. Renoir, a ramrod-erect 44-year-old with close-cropped hair, a boxer's face, and a penetrating gaze, handed Reich a card identifying himself as president of Lehman Brothers' asset management arm in Japan. Renoir told Reich he had come as a representative of his wife's family. Keiko, a short, attractive woman whose dark hair curled around her face like a helmet, smiled demurely. then sank into a chair. We understand you have an interest in the Empire State Building, Reich began. Obviously, it's a remarkable asset. Why are you interested? Keiko handed Reich a portfolio of pictures. Reich flipped through them, incredulous. He saw European castles, lots of them. My father collects them, said Kiko. Her billionaire father, who wished to remain anonymous, she said, had assembled a portfolio that included nine French chateaux, four British castles, a Spanish palace, and the second largest private residence in America, a sprawling behemoth in Long Island. The Empire State Building is just one of the buildings he wants, she said matter-of-factly. Renoir picked up the story. Kiko's aging father, he told Reich, had made a fortune during World War II, manufacturing uniforms for the Japanese Imperial Army, and after Japan's defeat, by producing soft goods for American occupying forces. Later, he branched into real estate, snapping up treasures from the royal family. Finally, he had become active in the stock market, taking runs at undervalued companies, not unlike the noted American raiders T. Boone Pickens and Carl Icahn. Reich, Never alert to potential controversy, interrupted. Renoir reassured him that his father-in-law hadn't been tainted by his takeover activity. The Empire State Building, Renoir concluded, would be another one of his collectibles. To Reich, the bizarre story seemed a plausible enough statement of motive. After all, Prudential was looking for someone with a world-class ego, and from what little he could tell from the snapshots, This buyer appreciated grandeur. But Reich's gut was telling him something else. There is something unsettling about this couple. Renoir seemed brash, a little too slick, even shifty. Perhaps, thought Reich, he was just reacting to Renoir's French accent, or to Keiko's strange disengagement. As he bid the couple goodbye, Reich couldn't shake the feeling that there was something that wasn't being said. Was it that Renoir had trouble looking him in the eye, he wondered after the meeting? We'll need to find out more about this family patriarch, Mr. Nakahara, Reich wrote in a memo to his file. Soon Peter Malkin received a telephone call from an investment banker at Solomon. At 57 years old, the gangly six-foot-three-inch Malkin had long ago emerged from the shadow of his late father-in-law, Larry Ween one of Manhattan's most respected property kingpins. By dint of inheritance and shrewd investments, Malkin controlled some 20 million square feet of commercial property, from Manhattan office buildings and retail properties to suburban apartment buildings and shopping centers. In an industry known for the rough edges of its dominant figures, Malkin was, at least on the surface, a notable exception. erudite civic-minded, and impeccably mannered, Malkin seemed less the product of his native Brooklyn than the exclusive Greenwich, Connecticut neighborhood where he had settled. Malkin took old-fashioned shoe shines at his desk, and when discussing his colleagues, seldom failed to attach a Mr. and Mrs. to their names. But some people in Malkin's business and social circles also associated him with a steely determination about matters large and small, a willingness, for example, to approach people who violated the restrictions on noisy, leaf-blowing machines in his neighborhood of million-dollar homes. In short, he was not a man who could be easily bullied. As holders of the Empire State Building's lease, Malkin and Leona Helmsley were the most logical buyers of the building itself. Their lease gave them almost absolute control of the building for 85 more years. Buying the bricks and mortar would consolidate their position remove the potential headache of a troublesome new owner, make it easier for them to sell their valuable position outright. But in earlier meetings with Solomon's White, Malkin had been cagey. I can be the best buyer, he had assured White. Nonetheless, he had bid only $32 million. White had warned him not to assume no one would bid higher. Malkin simply hadn't believed him. Malkin was astonished to learn that a $41 million bid had come in from Asia. The banker assured him the bid was real. Well, I can't match that, Malkin replied. He hung up his phone, crestfallen. He had figured he could afford to bid more for the building than was economically reasonable to protect the lease. But why would anyone else, he wondered. With Malkin apparently unwilling to engage in a bidding war, Prudential's Reich turned his attention back to the Renoirs. Prudential had a rule against selling buildings to anonymous buyers. Imagine the embarrassment that would come from selling the Empire State Building, say, to a blind trust backed by a Columbia cocaine cartel. Prudential would need to know exactly where any money for the Empire State Building was coming from, and Reich felt he hadn't gotten an adequate explanation from the Renoirs he told White to pump his Solomon colleague in Tokyo for more information on Mr. Nakahara, the family patriarch. White's colleague, who had a commission riding on the deal, assured him the family company was solid. Something else also nagged at Reich, the potential fallout from selling such a cherished landmark to a Japanese buyer of any sort. Recent years had seen a tsunami of Japanese purchases of American trophy properties, many at prices that left American real estate veterans bewildered. But the Japanese purchases of Rockefeller Center and the Pebble Beach golf course had sparked a xenophobic backlash as commentators fretted that an all-powerful Japan was consuming America's corporate lunch and was moving on to its cultural treasures. White played down the concern. The building couldn't be loaded onto a boat and moved back to Japan, he told Reich. Reich met with his bosses at Prudential to discuss the prospects of negative press. If the high bid came from Japan, the group decided, so be it. On August 23, 1991, Prudential signed a contract to sell the Empire State Building to an investment company set up by Renoir and Nakahara, pending approval of the buyer by Prudential's board of directors. Both Reich and White remained uneasy. Getting further information about Nakahara from Solomon's Tokyo office is like pulling teeth, White confided to Reich. White didn't want some enterprising reporter to uncover skeletons after the deal was closed. Both men pressed for more information from Japan. Finally, White began to get to the truth about Keiko's father, the mystery billionaire. His name wasn't Nakahara after all. It was Hideko Yokoi, When White's office punched the name into a computerized news search, it surfaced like a stink bomb. White was livid. He phoned Reich immediately. Now we know why we're not getting a straight story, he told Reich. He rushed uptown to Reich's office. The guy you're selling to is probably financially credible, he informed Reich, but you might want to think twice about doing business with him. White showed Reich newspaper accounts of an inferno that had gutted a massive Tokyo hotel in 1982, killing 33 guests. Yokoi owned the hotel. He'd been arrested, convicted of gross negligence, and was facing a jail term. Hideki Yokoi, the article suggested, was one of Japan's most hated businessmen. And that's not all, White told Reich. Yokoi had long been said to consort with Japan's notorious criminal underworld, the Yakuza, White said. He cautioned Reich that he had no idea whether the rumors were valid, but Reich had heard enough. This was hardly the caliber of buyer he was seeking. He told White he would urge his superiors to kill the deal. Shortly after White returned to his office, Reich telephoned. The deal was off. Reich phoned Renoir's lawyer with the news. Reich offered no explanation. If you and your client would like to discuss the reasons, we can meet in my office to do so, Reich told the lawyer. To Reich's astonishment, he never heard again from Jean-Paul Renoir or his wife. Reich couldn't help feeling that Prudential had avoided catastrophe by the narrowest of margins. There were those at Prudential who wanted to fire Solomon over the fiasco. But faced with the time-consuming process of starting again, Prudential relented, and White set to work to salvage the sales process. He telephoned Peter Malkin and told him the deal had collapsed. He asked Malkin if his bid was still on the table. Absolutely, said Malkin, his hopes rekindled. When he hung up, Malkin was convinced the deal would break in his direction after all. Within days, however, Solomon unearthed another prospect a Wall Street investor named Oliver Grace Jr. Remarkably, Grace bid $39 million, nearly matching Renoir's bid, and he had pedigree. One time, New York Mayor William R. Grace had been his great-great-uncle, and industrial magnate Peter Grace was his second cousin once removed. White ordered an exhaustive background check. At one time, White discovered, Grace had mounted a hostile tender offer for a closed-end mutual fund. It was a controversial move, but hardly extreme in the cutthroat 1980s takeover world. Reich wondered why a man with Grace's savvy and connections would offer so much for a property with the meager income stream of the Empire State Building. Was this another ego trip? Reich told White he wanted to meet Grace directly. Given the Grace family stature, Reich was expecting a man with Wall Street polish. The man who presented himself to Reich at the slightly unkempt look of an eccentric professor, a bit overweight, his hair askew. Reich seated him in a conference room. He asked Grace why he wanted the Empire State Building. Grace paused for a moment, then looked Reich in the eye and explained in a soft voice that he planned to put the building into a trust for his children and grandchildren. When the lease to Helmsley and Malkin expired in 2076, The building would soar in value to the benefit of his offspring. It struck Reich as a perfectly plausible motive. Reich invited Grace to join him in his office. Reich shut the door. At forty million dollars, I'll do the deal, Reich told Grace. Grace agreed, but he warned Reich that he didn't want his name to surface. This is the Empire State Building, Reich replied. He couldn't make any guarantees, but he'd do his best. He assumed Grace was embarrassed to be overpaying so he didn't press Grace on the point. On November 27, 1991, the deal closed. The Empire State Building was sold through a web of offshore trusts to E.G. Holding, a shell company set up by Grace. At a celebratory party, Solomon Brothers passed out cufflinks engraved with the building's signature profile, and the bankers expressed relief about narrowly averting a disaster. It would be some time before Wright concluded that, underneath Oliver Grace's soft edges and quiet demeanor, had lain a gifted liar. Nearly two years, in fact, would pass before Grace's lie began to unravel. One day, celebrity developer Donald Trump phoned Malkin at his office. By all appearances, the two real estate kingpins had practically nothing in common. With the exception of the Empire State Building, the bulk of the Manhattan portfolio Malcolm and his partners controlled was distinguished primarily by drabness and age, and Malcolm himself seemed stuck in the bygone era when real estate men preferred that their names be unspoken.